Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we've been looking uh, at a section that deals with the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the uh, patriarchs of Israel. And in verse 13 of chapter 11, it is to them that the reference is made, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. O God, You who gave the Holy Spirit and enabled us to hear the voice of Your Son from the pages of Holy Scripture, grant that this morning He might so operate on our minds and hearts as to make us receptive and open to all that You would say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> these all died in faith. The orientation of the lives of these people that we're reading about in Hebrews chapter 11 is towards the future and the unseen. We've, we've repeatedly seen that so far. And in many ways, dying, the event of dying, and dying well is the final climactic step of living well. It, all of our lives, you see, unless the Lord Jesus comes back, all of our lives, and I, I don't want to depress you this morning, and I don't want you thinking about this all day, and if you feel as if you are going to think about it all day and get very depressed, tell me as you go out the door, and I'll slap you, and you'll forget all about getting depressed and get annoyed at something else instead. But, but the, the reality of the fact that all of us are going to face this means that we should all be thinking ahead, not dwelling on what might happen, when it might happen, because that is absolutely futile and fruitless, but at least preparing ourselves for that event as those who live and move and have their being within the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's think for a moment what we mean by death. Uh, Philip Hughes, who used to teach at Westminster many years ago, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, puts it like this, death with terrible finality disintegrates man as a person. Death is a negation. It's a negation of the good and the bad in your life, the hopes and the dreams that you had, the failures and the successes. But faith, and not just any faith, but faith 
the faith of God in Christ risen and exalted. Hughes says, faith transcends the negation of death, and the hour of death in particular is the hour of the victory of faith. With that in mind then, we come to these verses that deal with the death of these people. And I want you to notice with me that the testimony of these verses is regarding the perseverance of their faith, the confession of their faith, and the reward of their faith. First of all, there is the perseverance of faith. In verse 13, you will notice there is an interruption to the flow of the structure of this chapter. Even if you haven't read the chapter before and you're just in church for the very first time, if you just glance at some of the great divisions of the, of the passage, you'll see each of them is introduced by these words, by faith, verse 4, by faith, Abraham, by faith, verse 17, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, the people, and so on. And that rhythmic repetition of those words, by faith, is interrupted by verse 13. These all, that is, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, these all died in faith, or according to faith, or what Philip Hughes calls in accordance with the principle of faith. And it's telling us that they were still believing when they died. They were still living by faith when they died, still looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to them at the point of their death. In fact, their lives, their faith had been tested over and over again because though they had persevered in believing God right to the very end of their earthly life, they had not actually experienced the fulfillment of those promises. God had promised them a land, Canaan, but they never entered the land. God had promised them a city. He had promised them a coming Messiah. He had promised them the ingathering of the nations. And yet, they'd never experienced any of those things in their lifetime. And yet, they did not allow the event of death to interrupt their act of believing. In fact, it says, by faith, they saw and greeted the things promised from afar, from a distance. These very words, the writer, I think, has been reflecting on Isaiah chapter 30, where the people of God write this, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. Behold, I see the power of God coming and a cloud covering the whole land. I see it coming. These people were looking forward in faith, and they saw what was coming by faith. They beheld the promise of God by faith. Chris Austin, one of the early church fathers and a great preacher, his name means golden tongue. 
Uh, he, he talked about them being like sailors on top of the mast who first see in the distance the faint outline of their port of destination, and they celebrate and they praise and they salute their goal. And these fathers of our faith, seeing by faith that Christ was to come, hearing by faith the voice of Christ in their Scriptures, and the glory that was going to come to them in Christ, would say as they say in Psalm 117, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is God and has shone upon us. And Jesus said, Abraham, your father, rejoiced to see my day. Now, he didn't see it. You know, some people are desperately literalistic. There are ways we use this word to see, not only to visibly see. I mean, I see you all this morning sitting where you're sitting in this room. But I can also see your point when you make a point to me. And they saw, they saw Christ. Jesus says, he saw it and was glad. Now, it's very important then that we understand that what, what is being said here is that at the point of death, they were still believing. Earlier on in this book, the writer has told us that we have need of endurance in case we shrink back. He, he's urged us to give thought to the matter now of our death and although we, we will not get the grace to actually die till the moment comes, nonetheless, we are to keep ourselves in that place where we are being purified and fortified by God's Word with a view to that moment when it comes. In fact, all that we do Sunday by Sunday is preparation for that last battle, that final frontier in our Christian journey and in our Christian lives. Back in chapter 3, we are His house. We belong to Him if we hold fast our confidence to the end. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence to the end, the writer says. Now, how do I keep persevering? How can I be sure that at the end of my life, I will be persevering in the things of God? And the answer is that God has given to you a day and a diet. The day is the Lord's day, and the diet is the bread of life that is the Word of God. The only corporate thing that you can say about a church, a church is not a corporate organization like, like a, one of these uh, businesses and, and so on nearby where we're meeting today. The only corporate thing about the church is the corpus, that is the body, that is the people, the, the body of Christ. And as we gather Lord's day by Lord's day, as we receive with meekness the Lord's Word, we are given the diet we need and the strength we need to persevere to the end, so that when the end comes, when that moment comes, we have 
the promises of God that we have read together and heard preached to us in our minds and in our hearts. We have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we have memorized together and can sing together or sing on our own to remind ourselves of the great and precious promises that God has given to us in Christ. At times I've sat beside people who are dying and the thing that they've wanted to do more than anything else is to sing the songs of Zion or to hear the Word of God read to them again. Their favorite passage perhaps, perhaps from Romans chapter 8, a word from God for the moment. That's what we are doing here Sunday by Sunday. Drilling into the Word of God, having it drilled into our minds and hearts so that in the day of crisis, in the day of greatest need, and in particular in that day when our time comes to leave this mortal coil behind and move into glory, we have what we need to sustain us. Now, what does it say about these people? They saw the promises from afar. Thomas Manton says, it is the property of faith to eye the blessings promised at a distance. And Abraham saw Christ's day. David spoke as Christ. The words of David are the words of Jesus. The prophets, we're told by Peter in 1 Peter 1, wrote concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories. The whole Bible is literally about Christ. And these men saw him from afar. And they were persuaded of the promises, it says. They held on to them firmly. And they died in faith. Now that expression, in faith, echoes the opening words of the chapter. And what I'm going to do is read those opening words again. But I'm going to use the Greek word that's used at the beginning rather than the word in our English translation. Faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. And that word translated hypostasis was rendered into Latin by the word substantia and translated into English by the word substance. And that is, in fact, the idea that's given us in, in verse 1. Uh, it's become a kind of modern thing to translate the words in a subjective manner rather than objective, as in the older translations. But the older translations in this case are, are right. Faith is the substance. It is a substantial thing. It is a stable disposition of the Spirit. The word faith here is not being used the way it's used in Romans 4 when it's talking about the instrument by which we receive our justification. Here it is what sustains the people of God. The faith is a stable disposition in 
and by which eternal life has taken root in us. Eternal life now has taken root in us so that you can say about someone who has believed that they have eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have everlasting life. And that's the reality. So when they died, they died in faith, in eternal life. They died with eternal life. That was the reality of their inner core existence by the power of God. And it's a great encouragement to us to persevere. I mean, the words assurance and conviction are good words. They're used elsewhere in the Bible, and they're the product of faith. But faith in itself, what God gives to us by His grace, is this substantial presence of eternal life at the core of our being, so that the believer, when he dies or she dies, dies in faith, the perseverance of faith. And then secondly, the confession of faith. Here's what it says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob acknowledged, or better, confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what you find. By the way, you find in Genesis 23, Abraham confesses, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. The Lord comes to Isaac, and the Lord says to Isaac, stay in the land that I, t- that I shall tell you and sojourn there. Jacob said or spoke about the days of my pilgrimage. In other words, these men confessed, they spoke about, they articulated, they testified to the fact that they were strangers and exiles in the world. Just like the psalmist in Psalm 38, I am a stranger with you and a sojourner, as were all my fathers. That's what a believer is in the world. And I want to break down their confession into two parts. This confession is a confession of faith. It's what the believer does. The Apostle Paul put it like this, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I mean, how does a person become a Christian? Paul tells us in Romans 10 and verse 9, if you shall confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And whenever I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, I'm doing exactly what these ancient fathers did when they said and confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I'm making a political statement, not a party political statement, but a political statement. I am saying that there is another, another land another allegiance, another authority, another king to whom I give my heart's allegiance. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? Jesus said to Pilate, I am. 
But my kingdom is not of this world, or else my people would be out fighting you. But they're not. Because it's not a this world kind of kingdom. The world in its present state, the Bible says, John tells us, 1 John 5, the world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. Donald Gray Barnhouse said that that word there is used in, in uh, the literature of the time to describe a man lolling in the arms of a prostitute, utterly under her sway. That's what the world is like. The world is passing away, says John in 1 John 1, and its desires thereof. In Job chapter 2, the Lord asks Satan where he's been, and Satan replies, going to and fro upon the earth and from walking up and down in it. Paul says, Satan is the God of this world. Jesus says, when the world hates you, know this, that it hated me first. The world is an, an enemy. It's no friend to God. This world is no friend to God. And those words come from a, a hymn. First time I read them was in Tom Sawyer, when Tom and Huck have snuck into the church to attend their own funeral, and they hear them singing, and they and and uh, it's, but that's just a memory. Uh, the world that we are living in is a world that's hostile to the things of God, and the believer has her eyes elsewhere. Look what it says. Those who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. There you have it. Faith eyes the unseen, the invisible. That does not mean incredible, but invisible. Realm where Christ is, where the whole Christ is, where Christ is in His resurrection body, where the saints and angels are. The Holy Spirit has cast the light of truth on that invisible realm to tell us that is your Father's house. That is the place your elder brother is preparing for you. That is where your spiritual siblings will meet you in eternity. And the Spirit of wisdom has opened our eyes to that glorious inheritance. And we may die well because we know that in this world, though we have known many enjoy much enjoyment of many things, many pleasures, many benefits that the world has given to us, and those are good things and enjoyable things, when we enter glory, we will have something we have not had unimpaired throughout all of our lives, the full enjoyment of God forever. The enjoyment of God forever. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we all get to heaven, we will enjoy God at a whole new level. You see here, our enjoyment of God is curtailed. It's curtailed by the circumstances of life. It's curtailed by the uh, oddities of our nature, the awkwardnesses of our, of our nature, uh, the, the, the failures and sins that we carry with us. It's all very depressing, and it all curtails 
our enjoyment of God. But when we enter glory, all that's gone. Here's what the whole Christ says. And I use that expression uh, quite deliberately, Psalm 17. That whole Psalm is Christ talking. But it's the whole Christ talking. That, it's the, that is, as Augustine says, it is the head and the body, the church, the members, the believing people. The whole Christ, head and members can say, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, that is from death, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For the Lord Jesus, awaking from the death of the cross, contemplating His resurrection, He's able to say this. And we, we, would be, we are able to say, when I awake, that is from the sleep of death, when I awake from death, when I pass that bar, when I go through that process of dying, I will be satisfied. I will behold your face. Jesus said it in light of his resurrection. We say it in light of our resurrection. So it's a confession of faith, and it's a confession of hope. Here's what the writer says. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In other words, this future, somebody's, somebody's put it like this, the fact that this future exists changes the present. The present is touched by that future reality. Here are these people, they're publicly making it clear, look at that language, they made it clear that they were seeking a homeland. They didn't keep it to themselves, they shared it with others. The others people were, were interested, they would tell them about it, and they would tell them what was to come. And their faith and hope were not focused on this reality. Look how, look how it's put. If they were thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, their hope was not on this side of death. Now, that does not mean we don't get involved in the world. I mean, when there were forces invaded the area where Abraham lived as a stranger and a foreigner, what did he do? He got his people together and he raised an army and he went to fight with the people who lived in the land and owned the land. When Joseph was put into prison and then out of prison became the prime minister of all Egypt, what did he do? He devoted himself to serving the Egyptians so that that famine they were delivered from that famine. We have things to do here. We have responsibilities in this place where we live to, to love this country, care for our neighbors, and, and do what we can for the benefit of humanity at large. But this is not where our horizon and our gaze are. Of course, there are, there are alternatives this worldly alternatives. Francis Bacon proposed faith in progress. He talked about new discoveries and inventions that would usher in a new age, the kingdom of man. 
Immanuel Kant wrote that revolutions could accelerate the transition from ecclesiastical faith, which was then passé, to rational faith. In the 19th century, Engels and Marx held fast to this notion of faith in progress as a new form of human hope. And they picked up the idea of revolution as the means to bring about this hope, to usher it in. And so they did. Or not they, but their followers did. The radical Russian revolution. Only to find that Engels and Marx, who had led them to take this action and to bring about this revolution, hadn't actually said what you did once you had it, the brave new world. And everything reverted to form. Progress is a poisoned chalice. Somebody put it like this. It has taken us from the sling, the sling to the atomic bomb. Progress, human progress, is not the bright, shining hope humanity clings to. Rather, it is this better country, the heavenly one. That's where the saints and angels look, the, the saints of God look. In our lives today, we, we see this through a glass darkly. We, we know in part. We walk by faith, not by sight. We, we rejoice in hope, but we're sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. This, that's what the pilgrim's life is like. But we're moving forward to what Augustine called the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God. That, that, that is a, that's a summary of the Christian hope. It's the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God. Or what Fred Sanders, who came to speak to us a time back, calls the happy land of the Trinity. This is the hope of eternal life. This is the hope that was held out to these people. But they had not yet possessed the kingdom or, in, or entered the land or seen God, neither have we. But today, we do what the patriarchs did. We desire. That word desire means to stretch out for something. We stretch out. We reach out. We strive forward for this heavenly reality. That's the confession of faith. Then the reward of faith. God is not ashamed to be called their God. How does God introduce Himself in the Old Testament? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those weren't the holiest people that you can imagine. They weren't even the brightest. Abraham got himself in all kinds of trouble down in Egypt. You can read about that in the Scripture. Isaac, we don't even know very much about Isaac. And Jacob, a disaster. And yet God calls himself, names himself, 
by these people. He comes to us. He comes to us and he says to us, I will be God to you. You will be my people. I will be your God. He says this to his church. Says it to us. The writer to the Hebrews has just quoted. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He says, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. God is not ashamed. That's a a remarkable act of condescension on God's part, that he should stoop to be known as our God. He's put his name upon us, which means very often we attract the world's reproach because they hated him, and so therefore now it hates us. But who cares? We have God. And he will do such things in us and for us that at the end of all things, we will bring glory to him. He will, by His Spirit and by His mighty working, achieve such a thing as we cannot even begin to imagine. I want to give you two verses in the Bible. Don't look them up until you get home. Both from Isaiah, one from Isaiah 28, the other from Isaiah 62. I said, don't look them up. Isaiah 28, in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to his people. The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to his people. Fast forward to Isaiah 62. You, you will be a crown of beauty in the hands of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Isn't that remarkable? What is said of God is said of you as God's people. That's what He's going to do for us. He has prepared for us a city. The goal is God. The love that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are to be enveloped in that. I don't know what that means, really. It's beyond my comprehension. But somehow or other, we are going to be, we are going to share in in what Jesus in his human nature now shares in glory. We will be glorified as Jesus has been glorified in his human nature. Our goal is God. Do you know these words? My goal is God Himself, not joy or peace or even blessing, but Himself, my God. Tis His to lead me there, not mine, but His, at any cost, dear Lord, by any road. So faith bounds forward to its goal in God, and love can trust her Lord to lead her there. Upheld by him, my soul is following hard till God hath fulfilled my deepest prayer. No matter if the way be sometimes dark, 
No matter though the cost be oft times great, he knoweth how I best shall reach the mark. The way that leads to him, it must be straight. One thing I know, I cannot say him nay. One thing I do, I press towards my Lord, my God, my glory here from day to day, and in the glory there, my great reward. My glory here, and in the glory there, my great reward. Brothers and sisters, when the time comes, may God grant you the grace to deal with the particularities of that occasion, but above all, to fill your mouth with these promises, with the great songs of Zion. When you close your eyes here and open them in glory, to see your Savior, to see your spiritual siblings, to enter that land where saints immortal dwell. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please encourage our hearts by your word. Fill us with rejoicing in the full salvation that's ours in Jesus' name. For his glory's sake, amen.